Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. Senate moves to pass a bill that would block changes to the District of Columbia Criminal Code, changes passed by the D.C. City Council over the mayor's veto. The U.S. House already passed this bill, and the president says he would sign it into law. And when he does, it would be the first Washington, D.C. bill stopped by Congress in 30 years. House Coronavirus Pandemic Subcommittee holding its first hearing on the origins of the COVID-19 virus with testimony from the former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention under President Trump, Dr. Robert Redfield, who says he was shunned by other health officials for suggesting COVID-19 came from a lab in China, a theory that is now considered a real possibility. The Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell holding day two of his congressional testimony today before the House Financial Services Committee talking about what the Fed may do on interest rates at its next meeting in just a couple of weeks. House debates a war powers resolution that would require the approximately 900 U.S. soldiers in Syria fighting ISIS be withdrawn. House Foreign Affairs Committee holds a hearing on the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. It's what the chair, Republican Michael McCall, calls a stunning failure of leadership by the Biden administration, One of the witnesses, a Marine sergeant who was almost killed by the terrorist bombing at Kabul Airport's Abbey Gate. He talks about the chaos and confusion surrounding the final days. And First Lady Jill Biden hosting recipients of this year's State Department International Woman of Courage Awards. And we start with the Senate and a vote on a resolution to block a bill that passed the Washington D.C. City Council that would make changes to the city's criminal code. CNN reports the D.C. Council chairman has attempted to withdraw the legislation from congressional review after it became clear the resolution of disapproval was on track to pass the Senate with wide support. But that attempted withdrawal has not stopped the Senate vote from moving forward. The vote marks the latest efforts by Republicans to put vulnerable Senate Democrats on the spot and expose divides within the party over politically charged issues. That from CNN. Ahead of the vote this Wednesday night, speaking in favor on the Senate floor of the resolution to stop the D.C. bill, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi. There is a good reason the Senate is considering a resolution of disapproval against the D.C. Council's Revised Criminal Code Act of 2022. With D.C.'s growing record of lawlessness, the City Council voted to eliminate mandatory minimum sentences and reduce penalties for crimes like robbery, carjacking, home invasion, burglary, and more. These are violent crimes that leave victims traumatized, injured, or worse, dead. So why is the instinct to protect the criminal to signal that the penalties for violating the law are being eased? This law will put residents constituents, tourists, federal workers, and elected officials directly in harm's way. Rather than holding them accountable for their own actions, the D.C. Council would prefer to let these violent criminals go back to the streets and commit the same violent crimes. Is it any wonder Washington, D.C. has a police recruitment and retention problem? At the same time, those responsible for enforcing our justice system seem more interested in carrying out justice based on politics. 
The Biden administration's Justice Department, for example, appears to be laser-focused on parents at local school board meetings, pro-life Americans exercising their right to protest, and spying on Catholic Americans while taking a nothing-to-see-here approach to threats of violence against sitting justices at the Supreme Court or attacks on pregnancy centers. If things continue this way, Americans will start to wonder if their safety and protection is determined by their political affiliation. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi, on the Senate floor. The resolution up before the Senate tonight, passing the U.S. House last week. Senate passage would send to the president's desk, and the president has indicated he would sign it into law. Speaking against the resolution, Senator Chris Van Hollen, Democrat from Maryland, one of the issues he focused on was the right of Washington, D.C. to make its own laws. I rise in opposition to the resolution by Congress to overturn a law that was duly passed and enacted by the elected representatives of the people of the District of Columbia. I support self-determination. I support self-governance. I support full democracy for the nearly 700,000 residents of the District of Columbia. Citizens who pay more federal taxes collectively than the people in 21 states. Citizens who serve their country in the armed forces. Citizens who live in the capital of the oldest democracy deserve the same rights to full democracy and self-determination as the citizens who live in any other state or any other city in the United States of America. That's why I've long championed and supported the cause of D.C. statehood. But I want to point out, Madam President, that is a fight not only for voting representation in the House and the Senate, but also for the principle of local autonomy, the principle of self-determination, also known as home rule. Senator Chris Van Hollen, Democrat from Maryland today on the Senate floor. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, Democrat from the District of Columbia, is the only congressional representative for D.C. currently in Congress, a non-voting delegate. She joined C-SPAN on the Washington Journal program this morning uh, And she opposed the congressional resolution, both on procedural grounds. She is an advocate for Washington, D.C. statehood and does believe Congress should should not interfere in the city's self-governance, although Congress currently has that power in the Constitution. The congresswoman also defended the criminal code revisions passed by the D.C. Council. The D.C. crime code had not been uh, updated since 1901. So what the city did was to look at crimes based on actual experience, what judges had in fact uh, done. So it was not an off-the-top-of-your-head change in the crime code. It was based on looking at what the actual experience had been, uh, doing a new crime code with, based on that experience. And um, as it turns out, the crime code comes up to the House and the Senate at a time when there's rising crime 
in the country, so there is a lot of blowback. And I think that might have happened for any criminal code update, given crime breaking out all over the country. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, Democrat from the District of Columbia, on this morning's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. And the Senate moving towards a vote this Wednesday night on that resolution to block the D.C. bill that changed the criminal code in the city. The House already passed it. It would then go to the president, who plans to sign it into law. And when he does, it will be as if the D.C. council had never had had passed it. The city council and the mayor could revisit visit this issue, pass a different bill, submit to Congress, or they could even resubmit the same bill that's all allowed under the Home Rule Act from the 1970s. Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing today the results of an investigation to the practices of the Louisville, Kentucky Police Department. Investigation launched after the 2020 fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor, an African-American woman, by a special police unit carrying out a raid of her home. Attorney General speaking today at the Justice Department in Washington. The department has concluded that there is reasonable cause to believe that Louisville Metro and LMPD engaged in a pattern or practice of conduct that violates the First and Fourth Amendments of the Constitution. There is also reasonable cause to believe that they engage in conduct that violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Safe Streets Act, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Specifically, the report finds that LMPD uses excessive force including unjustified neck restraints and the unreasonable use of police dogs and tasers, conducts searches based on invalid warrants, unlawfully executes warrants without knocking and announcing, unlawfully stops, searches, detains, and arrests people, unlawfully discriminates against black people in enforcement activities, violates the rights of people engaged in protected speech critical of policing, and along with Louisville Metro, discriminates against people with behavioral health disabilities when responding to them in crisis. The Justice Department has also identified deficiencies in LMPD's response to and investigation of domestic violence and sexual assault. Attorney General Merrick Garland today at the Justice Department in Washington. This was a two-year investigation. New York Times article on this explains the Louisville investigation is one of several so-called pattern or practice investigations into potentially discriminatory policing around the country that have been opened under Mr. Garland. Some of the reforms outlined by Mr. Garland have already been undertaken. After Breonna Taylor's death, the department banned no-knock warrants which allowed officers to break into a residence without warning. Officials have also expanded their use of counseling and training for officers and appointed an inspector general to review the department's practices. That from the New York Times. U.S. House Oversight and Reform Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic held its first hearing today on the origins of the COVID-19 virus. One of the witnesses, Dr. Robert Redfield, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the Donald Trump administration. Fox News reports that Dr. Redfield said during the hearing that he told former National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Dr. Anthony Fauci in 2020 that he did not believe natural spillover, the virus traveling from animals or plants to humans, was scientifically plausible with the origins of COVID-19 and was 
excommunicated from talks on this virus. During the hearing, Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, Republican from New York, asking Dr. Redfield about that. For two years, myself and the other Republicans on this subcommittee connected the dots. We exposed the evidence supporting our strong belief that COVID was developed and leaked from the Wuhan lab. And during those same two years, the same Democrats that sit on this committee, they only hindered, they obstructed, they refused to hold hearings and get to the truth. Now we see mounting evidence supporting the COVID-19 originated from the lab in Wuhan, China, run by the Communist Chinese uh, Party. And this hearing is about getting to the truth. I thank the chairman for making this the very first hearing because the American people who have seen just as many fellow Americans die from COVID, as nearly as many die from COVID, that died in every war since the American Revolution combined, deserve to know the truth. Uh, Dr. Redfield, you pointed to the lab leak theory even before we did. In mid-January of 2020, you expressed concerns to Dr. Fauci, to uh, Jeremy Farrer of UK's Wellcome Trust, and to Dr. Tedros of World Health Organization that, quote, we had to take the lab leak hypothesis with extreme seriousness. And you urged Dr. Fauci to investigate both the lab and the natural hypotheses. Shortly thereafter, on February 1st, uh, Farrer convened a meeting of a group of 11 top scientists across five time zones and asked Dr. Fauci to join, and he wrote, quote, my preference is to keep this group really tight. Obviously, ask everyone to treat in total confidence, unquote. Dr. Redfield, you were excluded from this call, but up until then, you had been on every single, you were included in every other conversation. What changed? Why do you think that you were excluded from these conversations? Thank you very much. I think uh, just to emphasize, uh, in, in, in early to mid-January, I did have multiple calls with Fauci, Farrar, and, and, and Tedros about how important I thought it was that science get engaged in, in aggressive, aggressively pursuing both hypotheses. I also expressed, as a clinical virologist, that I felt it was... Um, not scientifically plausible that this virus went from a bat to humans and became one of the most infectious viruses that we have with humans. All viruses are not the same. So when you look at coronaviruses for SARS and MERS, for example, when they entered the human species, which they did via an intermediate, they never learned how to go human to human. Even to this day, they don't know how to go human to human. So you can't equate Ebola with a coronavirus. Now, why do, you, why do you think you were excluded from those calls? I, I, because it was, I was told to me that uh, they wanted a single narrative and that I obviously had a different point of view. Dr. Robert Redfield, former CDC director with Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, Republican from New York at today's House subcommittee hearing on the origins of COVID-19. Another witness was Jamie Metzl, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, former State Department official, self-described Democrat, he told the committee, quote, there is no smoking gun proving a lab origin hypothesis, but the growing body of circumstantial evidence suggests a gun that, at the very least, is warm to the touch. Congressman Jamie Raskin, who took part today as ranking Democrat on the full Oversight and Reform Committee, said that the origins of COVID-19 are not as important as how those in charge responded to the virus's spread. Whatever the origins of COVID-19 whether it is bats or bureaucrats, no finding will ever exonerate or rehabilitate Donald Trump 
for his lethal recklessness in mismanaging the crisis in America, which cost us more than a million lives. Indeed, if COVID was actually the product of a lab leak or the worst bioweapon of mass destruction ever invented, as some have argued, and obviously we don't have the scientific evidence to say any of this yet, it would not only not remove Donald Trump's culpability, it would only deepen his culpability in the most profound way. Now, why do I say that? Because over the course of the crisis, beginning in January of 2020 and lasting through the spring on more than 42 different occasions that we have identified so far, President Trump openly praised and defended the performance of Communist Party Secretary and Chinese President Xi in his handling of COVID-19 and boasted of how closely they were working together and boasted of Xi's openness and transparency. Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland at today's hearing, House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Some other Democrats on the subcommittee also raising a non-COVID-19 issue with one of the witnesses, that witness Nicholas Wade, who was there to discuss an article that he had written about the lab leak theory. Subcommittee ranking Democrat Raul Ruiz of California calling for Nicholas Wade not to testify because he wrote a 2014 book titled A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. The congressman saying that that book was applauded by white supremacists and said the subcommittee should not give legitimacy to a man of such discredited, unscientific, and harmful views. Nicholas Wade said he wrote, quote, a determinedly non-racist book and stresses the theme of unity that we are all variations on the same human genome. C-SPAN cameras covered today's hearing, runs about three hours. You can find the full video at cspan.org. Leaders of U.S. government intelligence agencies testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee today about worldwide threats. The director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, saying the Chinese Communist Party represents both the leading and most consequential threat to U.S. national security and leadership globally. Its intelligence, specific ambitions and capabilities make it for us the most serious and consequential intelligence rival. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, pressing Director Haynes about another top threat identified by the intelligence community. This is an annual threat assessment. There is an annual threat assessment, so let's look at it. On page 33, you write, transnational, racially, or ethnically motivated violent extremists continue to pose the most lethal threat to U.S. persons and interests. Are you serious? You seriously think? that racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists are the most lethal threat that Americans face? So, yes, sir. In, in terms of the number of people killed or wounded as a consequence. How many people were has. killed by racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists in the United States last year? I, I don't have the exact number for you right here, but I will get it for you. How many people were killed by fentanyl in the United States last year? As you know, it's over 100,000 for fentanyl. But So isn't that um, a more lethal threat? Absolutely, but it's not being compared against fentanyl in that statement. It's, it's in the context of terrorist threat. Okay, so on page 38, you write about governance challenges in, in Europe. You talk about populist parties taking advantage of inflation and high energy prices. Uh, you worry that 
public discontent, potentially including increased mass protests, could undermine backing from mainstream European governments while increasing support for populist and extreme parties. You also say it could undermine the quality of democracy. Well, how is this foreign intelligence? And who are these populist parties in Europe that we're so concerned about? So we can get you further information about this, but I'll just say as a general matter, Senator, we, we do cover um, different effects on democracy throughout the world, and that is something that is typically perceived as part of our is, remit. Are the Brothers of Italy, the Italian Prime Minister Georgia Maloney's party, are they, are they a populist or extreme party that are a threat to America's interests? I don't know that – I wouldn't want to speak for the analysts as to whether or not they consider them a populist party. I suspect that they may, but I don't know that they would say that they're a threat to uh, U.S. – to the United States. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines at today's Senate Intelligence Committee hearing on worldwide threats, questioned by Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas. She was joined at the witness table by the leaders of the CIA, FBI, National Security Agency, and Defense Intelligence Agency. Senator James Lankford, Republican from Oklahoma, questioned the FBI Director Christopher Wray about a recently leaked FBI field office memo warning of potential Catholic extremists. Director Wray, there's a piece that came out recently out of the Richmond office that you have then come back and said, oops, that should have never gone out. Uh, But it was a piece that's in an unclassified document that came out of the memo. And the memo specifically states in the opening paragraph, uh, violent extremists and radical traditionalist Catholic ideology almost certainly presents opportunities for threat mitigation through the exploration of new avenues for tripwire and source development. Wow. Uh, This goes specifically into these uh, radical traditional Catholics and explains what a traditional Catholic looks like on it. Help me understand what's happened since then when this has come out. Well, first, let me say that when I first learned of the piece, I was aghast. As you should be. Uh, And we took steps uh, immediately to uh, withdraw it uh, and remove it from FBI systems. Uh, It does not reflect FBI standards. We do not conduct investigations based on religious affiliation or practices, full stop. Uh, We have also now ordered our inspection division to take a look at how this happened and try to figure out how we can make sure something like this doesn't happen again. I will note it was a, a, a product by a one field office, uh, you know, which is, we, of course, we have scores and scores right. of these products. And when we found out about it, we took action. We are also taking steps to reinforce with our workforce uh, all of the longstanding policies we have that speak to this kind of thing. We've got refresher training for the relevant employees, et cetera. Uh, and we do not and will not target people for religious beliefs, and we do not and will not monitor people's Religious practices, that's, that's not acceptable. That, that is completely not acceptable. That is, uh, I, I had for the first time a couple of years ago, I had parents that came up to me in state and said, I went to a, a, um, a parent meeting at my school. Am I going to be monitored now? And after this came out, I have people that catch me and say, okay, I'm Catholic. Am I about to be monitored now? Uh, this sends all the wrong message on it. I do have to tell you, we've talked about this before. When I saw the memo and looked through it, uh, I was not surprised to be able to see the source document that they came back through was the Southern Poverty Law Center, which we've talked about before, is not the FBI, but for whatever reason, the FBI continues to be able to count on them for who's the listing of a hate group. They have a long history of having anti-Christian bias, 
And there's multiple different entities that they've uh, actually tried to go after on that as a hate group. But for whatever reason, the FBI continues to be able to count them as a source uh, to be able to identify this. This is a very real problem. And uh, the FBI needs to identify on its own. We have great resources. What are the threats there? Not outsource that to a group that is known to be not center left, but far left group uh, and has its own set of biases as well. Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, questioning the FBI Director Christopher Wray at today's Senate Intelligence Committee hearing on worldwide threats. Politico reporting about this hearing that the Intelligence Committee Chair, Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, warned of broader consequences if the intelligence community continues to block congressional access to classified documents recovered from locations connected to Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Mike Pence. Senator Warner, backed up by the panel's vice chair, Senator Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida, said he wanted to be loud and clear that Congress has the right to review the documents as part of its oversight responsibilities and failing to provide access, the Democratic chair added, would negatively affect the intelligence community's efforts to build support for re-upping a sweeping warrantless surveillance program later this year. That from Politico. C-SPAN covered this hearing as well. Find the video at cspan.org. And this is Washington Today. Fox News host Tucker Carlson continued his reporting Tuesday night using some of the more than 40,000 hours of security video from January 6, 2021, and the attack on the U.S. Capitol. That video provided by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Tucker Carlson continuing to say the events that day were mostly peaceful, not a violent assault, saying those videos touched a nerve because they're a threat to the lies that Chuck Schumer has been telling for the last 26 months, referring to the Senate Majority Leader. Senator Schumer tweeting today, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News knew Donald Trump lied about the 2020 election, but Fox News kept airing the big lie on their network, and they keep airing it. Fox News has lied to America and eroded trust in our democracy. Some reaction from House leaders today on Capitol Hill. First, Congressman Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana. If you looked at some of, I watched the first day of his uh, expose on some of these tapes that are released that you're all, you're all going to be seeing as well. Uh, but he also criticized uh, the people who broke the laws and, and attacked police officers. Uh, so the bottom line is there's finally transparency. Uh, this January 6th committee was always partisan from the beginning. Nancy Pelosi did not want all the facts to come out, so she cherry-picked what was released. She actually released some things that even Capitol Police uh, didn't want released. They, they asked Tucker Carlson to not show some things that he blurred out. Uh, there were things that Pelosi's January 6th committee released, even about the undisclosed location uh, where members of leadership went. Uh, so at the end of the day, transparency is an important thing. And so the public's going to be able to see a lot more information. Uh, but ultimately, you know, and, and for my colleague, Barry Loudermilk, uh, I think he's owed an apology by every Democrat who questioned him on the events prior to January 6th. They implied things about him that weren't true, that those tapes revealed. And, uh, and I'm waiting for those apologies to come because they owe it to him. Yes, in the back. Look, no matter whether the tapes are released or not, it seems like some in the press want to talk about January 6th every day. Uh, so do a lot of Democrats. They only want to talk about certain parts of it, though. And so at the end of the day, have the transparency to get all the facts out. Let the public see 
uh, everything, not just what was a one-sided sham committee that was only focused on getting one side of the story out. We have serious questions about whether prior to January 6th there were decisions made uh, by the leadership in Congress at the time to turn down help from the National Guard, for example, uh, that could have prevented what happened. And so a lot of that is still going to come out. So get the facts out. And in the end, transparency is the best disinfectant. The House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, taking reporters' questions. At a separate news conference, the House Democratic Caucus Chair Pete Aguilar of California also asked about Tucker Carlson's reports. Previously, you were critical of uh, Speaker McCarthy handing over the January 6th tapes to Tucker Carlson. So both as a member of Democratic leadership and a former member of the January 6th committee, I want to know, A, if you had a chance to watch Tucker Carlson's program of the tapes, and B, what your, your takeaway was from it and what your reaction was. For my own mental health, I'm making a point not to watch that show. Um, but uh, I did see snippets on uh, online. And I'll tell you, what we have seen from Tucker Carlson is continued lies from a proven liar. Uh, and I understand uh, the desire to divert away from, you know, the lawsuits and things and, and the reporting and the emails that, and text messages that, that he sent. But what he is doing, with the help of House Republicans and Speaker McCarthy, mind you, is dangerous. It's dangerous to those of us who work in the Capitol. It's dangerous uh, to the law enforcement entities who protect us here in this Capitol, showing camera angles. Um, all of that is deeply, deeply dangerous and frustrating. And to continue to characterize this is, is a, a tourist gathering um, when insurrectionists and rioters uh, were walking in these halls, uh, smearing it on the walls, is just, it's, it's the height of hypocrisy and, and incredibly dangerous. But this isn't just on Tucker Carlson. This is on House Republicans and Speaker McCarthy, who has demonstrated he will do and say anything he can to deliver on the promises that he made uh, to the 20 most extreme members of his, of his caucus. Congressman Pete Aguilar, Democrat from California, the Democratic caucus leader in the House, and as mentioned, former member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, meeting with reporters today. An article from CNN, Republicans in the House are beginning to plot multiple probes into the 2021 Capitol attack, including looking into the Democratic-led Select Committee's actions from the last Congress, the security failures from that day, and potentially even the treatment of January 6th defendants. Multiple sources familiar with the work tell CNN the move comes as Speaker McCarthy greenlit the release of January 6th security footage to Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who sought to whitewash the severity of the attack and caused a major uproar among Senate Republicans on Tuesday. That article from CNN. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you get your podcasts. The Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says the Fed has not yet decided on the size of the interest rate increase that is expected at their next policy meeting in two weeks. Fed Chair Powell testifying today before the House Financial Services Committee, reiterating what he said Tuesday before the Senate Banking Committee, that to deal with high inflation that is not coming down as fast as the Fed would like, larger interest rate increases may be necessary and the top rate for interest rates may be higher than previously expected. At today's hearing, some questions from the chair, Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina. Chairman Powell, there's been a lot of discussion over the last 24 hours about the effect of rate increases on the economy. A lot of debate about what you said yesterday in the Senate 
Um, how does, but no one asks you this directly. We have a March meeting coming up, Open Markets Committee meeting coming up in two weeks. Um, how do you think about the March meeting? What's your approach to that? What are we likely to see? Thank you. So I, I, I won't repeat what I, what I just said in my testimony, but, but if I turn to the March meeting, um, I guess I would say that we have some potentially important data coming up, uh, data to be analyzed. Uh, one of them came out at exactly 10 o'clock. That would be the JOLTS report, which, of course, I haven't seen, having been sitting here at 10 o'clock. But we're also getting a jobs report on Friday <clears throat> and a CPI and PPI inflation report next week. So those will be important, and we'll scrutinize them. When we say that we're going to be looking at the totality of the data, which is what I said, that does include these, these reports yet to come. They're going to be important in our assessment of the higher readings that we have very recently received and of the overall direction of the economy and of our progress in bringing inflation down. And we'll be carefully analyzing them. Um, again, I, we have not made any decision about the March meeting. We're not going to do that until we see the, the additional data. The larger point, though, <clears throat> is that we're not on a preset path and that we will be guided by the incoming data and the evolving outlook. But you've also said higher longer. Is yes. that still the case? Yes. Yeah, so, and I, as I said in my testimony, uh, we look at, at the data since January and, and, and also the revisions to the November and December inflation data, and they suggest that uh, the ultimate level of interest rates is so to repeat, higher than we'd expected. What are those economic factors? So um, going back to January, as I mentioned, the, the, the nice, the softer inflation readings of November and December were revised up. We got a very strong uh, inflation report for January. We got an extraordinarily strong employment report, very strong consumer spending, uh, strong manufacturing data right across the board. And as I pointed out, some of that may have been affected by the very warm January weather, but nonetheless, all of it pointed in the same direction. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell before the House Financial Services Committee testifying on the semi-annual monetary report from the Fed. Questions from Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina, chair of the committee. Wall Street today, the Dow down 58, Nasdaq up 45, S&P up 5. U.S. House today debating a resolution that would require U.S. soldiers stationed in Syria to be brought home. There are approximately 900 U.S. troops there fighting ISIS alongside the Kurdish-led Syrian defense forces. If the resolution in that was debated in the House passes the House and passes the Senate, Congress would have the opportunity to debate and vote on whether to provide statutory authorization for a continued U.S. mission in Syria. And if the president fails to receive authorization from Congress in six months, then the U.S. Armed Forces would be withdrawn until Congress provides that authorization. The sponsor of the resolution, Congressman Matt Gates, Republican from Florida. And since we have been there, we have seen Americans die. We have seen tens of billions of dollars wasted. And what is hilarious about the 2001 AUMF that the neoconservatives wave around like some permission slip for every neoconservative fantasy of turning an Arabian desert into a Jeffersonian democracy is that that very 2001 AUMF would justify attacking the people that we're fighting against and the people we're funding because both have ties to al-Qaeda and, of course, the 2001 AUMF dealt with al-Qaeda. 
All this talk about a reemergence of ISIS, I would encourage my colleagues to go read the Inspector General's report of the last quarter that indicates that ISIS is not a threat to the homeland. And with the Turks conducting operations in Syria against ISIS, with Assad and Russia having every incentive to create pressure on ISIS, I do not believe that what stands between a caliphate and not a caliphate are the 900 Americans who have been sent to this hellscape with no definition of victory, with no clear objective, and purely existing as a vestige to the regime change, failed foreign policies of multiple former presidents. Congressman Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, today on the House floor referring to AUMF. That stands for Authorization of the Use of Military Force. Last month, four U.S. troops were wounded in a helicopter raid in Syria that killed a senior ISIS leader. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin this week made a surprise trip to Iraq to express support for U.S. troops in Iraq and neighboring Syria fighting ISIS. Opposing today's House resolution, Congressman Gregory Meeks, Democrat from New York, who is ranking member on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I oppose an indefinite U.S. military presence in Syria. This measure forces a premature end to our mission at a critical time for our efforts. Forcing such a premature removal of U.S. forces not only endangers our national security, it threatens that of our allies and partners across the region and beyond, and most of all, the Syrian Kurds. Our very small footprint in northeast Syria, alongside our courageous Syrian Kurdish partners, continues to serve a valuable purpose as we partner with them in ensuring ISIS does not reconstitute and again destabilize the region or use Syria as a base for attacks elsewhere. Congressman Gregory Meeks, Democrat from New York, on the House floor, a concurrent resolution being brought up under the War Powers Act of 1973 to force withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. House voted down this resolution by a vote of 103 to 321, voting yes, 47 Republicans and 56 Democrats. A story from Reuters, a U.S. Senate committee backed legislation on Wednesday to repeal two authorizations for past wars in Iraq, paving the way for a possible vote in the full Senate before the 20th anniversary of the last invasion by American troops. Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted 13 to 8 to approve a bill to repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force, or AUMFs, against Iraq, the latest attempt to reassert Congress's role in deciding to send troops into combat. That story from Reuters. The House Foreign Affairs Committee today held a hearing on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 with testimony from Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who was severely wounded in a terrorist bombing at Kabul Airport's Abbey Gate, a bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members and 170 Afghan civilians. Sergeant Vargas Andrews lost two limbs and several organs and has undergone dozens of operations. Questions to him today from the committee chair, Congressman Michael McCall, Republican from Texas. You described the scene as chaotic. Uh that the State Department was not prepared, that uh, they would completely shut down processing every evening and into the morning, leaving you 
and your colleagues with a nightmare, you called it. Could you describe that? Yes, I can, Chairman. Um, <clears throat> so for us, obviously, um, ground forces at Abbey Gate were routine. And I'm sure it was like this at other gates as well, but at Abbey, um, you know, helping process between, you know, seven of us and our sniper team, uh, we would go down and if we weren't on the gun or we weren't catching a few winks, um, we would be down processing nationals and civilians and, uh, you know, talking with everyone down there. And from us, we were passed from our chain of command, you know, throughout the evening to, to halt processing Afghans, to stop searching them. Um, they, we, you know, we kind of had to keep, keep control of the crowd that was left over in the evening throughout, I would say, sundown to sunup. Um, there was no... There was no plan in place throughout the evening, and um, the State Department would not take Afghans that we processed or searched, so eventually we just stopped throughout the evening. The, um, I'll go back to you. Yeah, and um, I think, because you're correct, there was no plan. There was no plan, and then the plan was to leave the Taliban in charge of this evacuation, which led to the chaos and the bloodshed that ensued after that. I want to focus specifically on what you saw <clears throat> on August 26. I know a be on the lookout, an intelligence bulletin went out uh, identifying two individuals as a potential IED threat. That is correct. To the Abbey Gate. Yes, we um, routinely would send. Um, two or three guys back uh, to collect intel from, from our intel assets um, over in the Joint, Joint Operations Command. And that morning around uh, 2 a.m., we were passed that, the suicide, that a suicide bomber was in the vicinity and in the you know, surrounding neighborhoods, uh, potentially moving towards the gate. We were told that he was uh, wearing a brown man dress, a black vest. Um, he would look clean shaven and be younger with an older man um, traveling as his companion, and we saw just that on the 26th, um, you know, around 12:30 in the afternoon. And in fact, uh, you said you uh, passed along the communications network that there was a potential threat, an IED attack imminent, and in your words, this was as serious as it gets. That is correct. We we had eyes on um, these two individuals that fit the exact description that we were given of uh, from our intel assets. And we had pictures, we had them clear as day to be able to see through our scope um, with ease of fire on both individuals, as well as through our spotting scope. Um, we have high-powered optics with quality lenses on our cameras to take clear-cut clear, clear -cut pictures of everything that we see. That's our, that is an enormous part of our job. Do you it's, still have those photos? They were taken on an SD card when we turned them over to intelligence. Um, then you said you requested from your commander uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Whitted, to come to the tower to see what you saw. And the psychological operations came to the tower and confirmed that the suspect met the suicide bomber description. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So you had him? We did. And then you showed this evidence and you asked your commander if you could shoot. We did, Chairman. Um, <clears throat> Both myself and my team leader asked asked for engagement authority, and he responded with uh, he did not have that authority 
So we asked who did. He told us he did not know and would go find out in that time. Um, in the time of talking with him and keeping eyes on this individual over the course of 30 minutes, uh, the two individuals both disappeared into the crowd of thousands, as shown on um, the slides as I was talking. I mean, I think everyone can understand um, by looking at some of those pictures that I, that I had up there how enormous the crowd was. I mean, it, it was unfathomable. Um, very easy to move through and conceal yourself, and that's what happened. Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews testifying in a personal capacity, not representing the U.S. military, today before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, questioned by the chair, Michael McCall, Republican from Texas. From NBC News, this story, an extensive 2022 CENTCOM investigation found that the Abbey Gate attack carried out by a lone suicide bomber, quote, was not preventable at the tactical level without degrading the mission to maximize the number of evacuees and was not the result of any act of omission or commission by forces on the ground. NBC News notes in a 115-page interim report released last fall, Congressman McCall blamed President Joe Biden's administration for the chaos at the airport, saying it had failed to properly plan for the fallout of the withdrawal. First Lady Jill Biden today honoring 11 women leaders from around the world at the White House on this International Women's Day, presenting them with the International Woman of Courage Award, which, according to the State Department, recognizes, quote, women who have demonstrated exceptional courage, strength, and leadership in advocating for peace, justice, human rights, gender equity, and equality, and the empowerment of women and girls in all their diversity, often at great personal risk and sacrifice. Here's the First Lady. Right here in the East Wing, we will tell their stories of fearlessness, resilience, and hope. We will hear from them in their own words. And there are people outside of this room who need to hear their stories too. The girls who will inherit this world. The future engineer who loves exploring, who sees magic in mechanics and technologies that connect us to each other but is told, there's no place for you in the classroom. The future president or prime minister who is told that her voice is too loud or too bossy or too feminine, whatever that means. <laughs> the child who lives in fear. The star who is told to hide her light. The girl who feels the smallness of the world closing in, afraid that her dreams are just too big to carry alone. Again and again and again, they wake up to find a world made for someone else and watch their brothers and their fathers and their uncles and their neighbors rise and grow while they are told to shrink, told that they're not good enough, not strong enough, not worthy of the lives that they dream about. But today, we're here to tell girls everywhere the truth that they need to hear. Yes, you matter. Yes, you can make a difference. First Lady Jill Biden at the White House today, the 17th International Woman of Courage Awards, presented to 11 honorees on this International Women's Day. Those honorees today coming from Afghanistan, Argentina, Central African Republic, Costa Rica, Ethiopia, Jordan, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Mongolia, Poland, and Ukraine. State Department says that 
spokesperson Ned Price will be stepping down from his post later this month to take a position working directly for Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The announcement coming Tuesday, and today at his briefing, he was thanked by Associated Press reporter Matt Lee. Just on a personal note, I wanted to say uh, thank you uh, for your time up here. You'll have, I'll have more to say, and there'll be proper, I'm sure, time for a proper send-off slash roast with perhaps a couple of surprises uh, on the occasion of your final briefing from the podium. But you're, anyway. Uh, you're making me nervous hearing about yeah, this, but well, I, uh, I appreciate <clears throat> the sentiment. State Department spokesman Ned Price, who has been the State Department spokesman for the entirety of President Biden's administration since January 2021. Before that, he spent over a decade at the CIA. And when he leaves his position, he'll be replaced by the current deputy spokesperson, Vedant Patel. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. You can subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.